What a joy to be here with you all today to uh, speak about those who are not interested. In other words, how do you evangelize people who are simply indifferent to the gospel? They're not angry. They're simply indifferent. Fortunately, for uh, 40 years, or 100 years, Asbury Seminary has faithfully been proclaiming the Word of God, both in word and deed, and it's just a privilege for my wife, who's here of 37 years, and myself to be with you, and we want to engage the mission uh, statement that's actually here on the screen, which says, Asbury Seminary is a community called to prepare theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize. Now, it goes on to say more, but I'm going to stop there, right? In a previous generation, it was actually not as complex to evangelize. But in this generation, there's more complexities, and there's more opportunities as well. For eight years, I've been teaching a seminar in partnership with Asbury Seminary and Knox Cohort to help people learn practical approaches to evangelism so that when they graduate, they know how to engage people in different sectors of life. At the end of those eight weeks, we found that they've increased their confidence by 100% and increased their competence or their abilities by 200%. But at the beginning of the eight weeks, I tell them, at the end of this, we're going to invite people who are not yet believers to come to a meal that we'll have with them, and you will practice all that you've learned. Okay? And we've had in the past some Muslims, We've had uh, Buddhists, we've had Wiccan, um, atheist, agnostic, indifferent. And as soon as I tell them that they're going to share their faith with these kind of people, they get this look of terror across their face. Almost like I asked them to jump off a cliff. Because actually, I have a little bit of experience in cliff jumping. <laughs> it turns out, uh, a few years ago, my sons and I, we were in the boundary waters, the boundary between Canada and Minnesota, floating along... Are you feeling me here? Okay. I've got something here. I'm not sure what the spirit has stirred up, but I think I like it. Okay. <laughs> so my son, he said, hey, Dad, there's a, a cliff there. I want to jump off of that. And we get to the bottom. It's about 60 feet high. We check the water, and we start to walk up the side. I'm thinking, when we get to the top, he's going to look down and reconsider because it's very different from the bottom looking up than from the top looking down. You, you feel me here? So we're climbing up. He's a little ahead of me. And, and my heart is racing, and I'm thinking, okay, we're near the top. This is the point where he's going to back away. As I look over at my son, he's already in midair. <laughs> so I'm like, now here's the worst thing. Uh, I'm the dad. I can't be a chicken, so I've got to jump. <clears throat> so I get this running start, and I jump. Now, here's the funny thing. When you jump off a cliff like that, you have a lot of time to think. It's actually interesting, as the, the water's rushing towards you, I'm thinking thoughts like, you know, how did I get here? And, and even more to the point, how is this going to end? And you know, that's exactly how those students look when I tell them they're going to engage people in evangelism. They're thinking, how am I going to get there? And how's it going to end? Now, in the end, it actually works out really well. Over eight years, has been a very positive conclusion. But I understand that fear that's real. And I think we just own it. We just admit that we feel that way. And we also start to recognize that simple formulas that were formulated in a previous generation just don't work. Simple formulas like four spiritual laws, a Roman road, or evangelism explosion that worked in a previous generation just fall on deaf ears in a more complex generation. So for example, 
My son called me last week. He said, hey, Dad, I really feel called and led to evangelize my barber because I sit in this chair, and he's got, like, uh, tattoos up his arm, and one of them, he told me, is a satanic symbol. And, and as we're talking, he told me that his boyfriend left him, but he's not too concerned because he contacted a witch to put a curse upon him, and I feel like I should share the gospel with him, but I don't know where to start. Like, where do I start with that? Those simple formulas have nothing to offer that guy. So let's call him Tattoo Guy, and we'll come back to him. But what's more common is this gal. We'll call her Indifferent Gal. She basically said this to me. She said, you know, I used to go to church as a young girl. As I grew up, though, I kind of grew out of it and didn't see the relevance of it. I'm not angry at God. I just don't see the significance or the relevance for God in my life. So how do you deal with these people? Everywhere from tattoo guy to indifference gal, how do we engage them in faithful conversations where God has placed us in? So the first thing I'd like to say is that we're actually catching up on a conversation that God is having. We can be assured that God is having a conversation with everybody we meet. Okay? Wesleyans call that provenient grace. God has gone ahead of us and started a conversation with them. Now, our role is to catch up on that conversation and keep it moving towards Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to convict and draw. Now, now keep in mind, we don't need to do the Holy Spirit's role. We do our role. We listen well enough to catch up on that conversation and see where God is already talking to them. And there are different conversations people's having, so there's no simple, like, magic bullet, some simple formula to lay on everybody. We catch up on this conversation by what Leslie Newbegin called double listening. As we're engaging people, we listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to us. In one ear, in the other ear, we listen to that person and that culture, and then we see what God has put in our hands to connect the dots. Now, it's been said that the difference between being listened to and being loved is imperceptible. So as you are listening to somebody and they feel like they've been heard, they are actually feeling loved. So part of the equation is, what if evangelism is really more about helping a person fall in love with God than it is proving a theory about God? Chesterton said it this way, religion is more like a love affair than it is proving a formula. So what if our role of evangelist is to catch up on that conversation in order to see where God has started it <clears throat> to connect the dots? Now, oftentimes, when, when I was in seminary just a few years ago, um, we assumed that people were guilty for their sin. And therefore, we used to describe something like this. You know, uh, as we're going to share the gospel, we'll say something like, you know, God loved you, has a, a great plan for your life, but you've sinned, and therefore your guilt has separated you from God. Jesus, thankfully, takes that guilt upon himself, and like standing before a judge, God slams the gavel down and says, not guilty to you because Jesus has taken that guilt and justice has been meted out. Okay? That's the approach that we often gave, particularly in a guilt-justice world where the result of sin was guilt internally and therefore the redemption meant that justice was fulfilled. And that made sense. We draw from the book of Romans, largely, and largely in the Western world uh, in a previous generation, this was how people often engaged the gospel. But what about when you go to another culture? Okay, you go to a different place, and this, by the way, is uh, the Bolsa people in northern Ghana. We lived there for nine years, and 
you know, for like the first year, I was sweating it out to learn this language that wasn't written down. These are least reached people, no electricity, all that with our family. And finally got able to the point where I could communicate the gospel. And I shared it in a way similar that, that I just described it to you. They listened to me patiently and said something like this. Well, you know, that's interesting, kind of, but not really. <laughs> Man, I was devastated. I mean, I've flown all this way, you know, living in this group of people, and they find the gospel, like, not even interesting? Huh. What if God is not having a conversation about guilt? What if God is starting a conversation somewhere else? Take a look at the smocks these guys are wearing, and there's some little uh, rectangular pieces that look kind of like, but they're not, uh, Boy Scout merit badges, okay? Um, what those really are is that these warriors... Uh, and by the way, this is a festival that commemorates when the Bolsa people pushed back the Islamic slave raiders who came to take them and throw them down to the transatlantic slave raiding. So they pushed them back, and this is like a 4th of July celebration. So they, these warriors would go to the Tangbain, which is an earth shrine, and the Tenyono, the one who oversees the earth shrine, would take some dirt, put it inside this piece of leather, wrap it up, sew it in their smock, so that they'd have spiritual protection from witchcraft, juju, evil eye, malevolent ancestors. In other words, <clears throat> every, every local event had witchcraft just below the surface, and they were in fear. So if God starts a conversation with them about fear, <clears throat> I started to present the gospel in a different way. They said, well, you know, God made your first ancestors, and they were close, but because they sinned, God put a curse upon humans and the evil one. And God made a promise that one day he would crush the head of the evil one so that your fear of witchcraft and juju and evil light would be destroyed. In the fullness of time, God sent his own son called Jesus to come and to be that power of God to break that curse. Would you like to hear more about that? And they are all ears. So after nine years, not because of us, often in spite of us, there's 25 churches in that area, because they recognize that God has started a conversation in this area of their fear. And Jesus is the power of God for salvation, not simply the one who gives justice to remove guilt that they don't have. So <clears throat> this is what's called a fear-slash-power worldview, prevalent in many areas in Africa, Latin America, and folk cultures. And we find actually, theologically, this enters the human experience at the very beginning. If you remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hide... God chases them, and Adam says what? I was afraid, therefore I hid. So the result of sin is not simply guilt, as we thought before. The result of sin is often also fear. And what God provides is power. So let's go to, back to Tattoo Man. He's not feeling guilty for sin, but he is very much gripped in fear. Now think about the first recorded conversation that God has with humans. And that's what I asked my son on the phone. I said, hey, um, do you remember the first conversation that is recorded that God has with humans? Do you know how it started? Anybody? God says, where are you? Now think about that for a second. God is omniscient. He knew exactly the geographical location, did not need the GPS to find him, right? But he gives the dignity to ask Adam a question in order for him to articulate how he's feeling and the result of what he's done, okay? And then he gives three more questions. God gives three more questions before any kind of statement comes out. 
And if that's how God engages us, maybe that's the best approach to engage tattoo men. What if you ask them a question like this? What do you fear will happen if you don't get power? Or why do you think witchcraft will help you? And listen to his response. And then, by the way, think about, you remember how you had to deal with fear as a young guy in high school? He said, yeah, Dad, don't remind me of that. I said, yeah, but you remember how Jesus showed up in a very powerful way to give you power to overcome the direction you're moving in? He said, yeah. That's what tattoo guy needs to hear. How did Jesus give you power to overcome your fear? And if he's tracking with that, then you say, well, you know, it's not just me, but I know lots of other people that have overcome their fear. I know, I've read about a guy who was full of demons, and God gave him power to overcome that. And if Jesus can help him, think about how his power can help you. And if he's interested in that, you tell him the story of the demoniac, right? So basically, this approach is their story, listen to it, your story connecting with theirs, and then God's story, how God engages them. Now, what we realize is the fear-power worldview is not simply in Africa, Latin America, etc. This is actually in North America, particularly among the addictive community. Those who have an addiction, they're not looking to assuage their guilt. They're looking for power to overcome that addiction. And former evangelist professor George Hunter said that about 30% of the American population has some addiction when you add up all the possibilities in contemporary society. Now, Dallas Willard calls this the divine conspiracy. And he says, the kingdom of God will overcome the systems of the world as ordinary Christians live out their daily lives with grace, fear, and love. In other words, live out your life in the barber chair. Live out the life in your job, however mundane or whatever it is. Live out your life at that coffee shop, that sporting activity, wherever you go. Listen to people. They will describe where God has that conversation started. If you do that, you're able to catch up on it and keep it moving forward. And what we realize after a while is perhaps we put like a straitjacket on the gospel. We thought the gospel was limited to guilt. And we didn't realize it's a whole lot bigger than that. Now, it's a bit of a comfortable straitjacket, right? Because it fits our culture. But when we engage other people, other worldviews, God has a different conversation going on there. And therefore, we need to catch up on that. Brenda Collagen has a book where she describes that the New Testament does not provide just one approach to present salvation. So she's a New Testament scholar and writes this. The New Testament presents us with a variety of pictures taken from different perspectives. The variety of images attest to both the complexity of the human problem and its solution. And she provides 10 images of salvation that are presented in the Bible. And she concludes, each image is a picture of salvation from one perspective, posing and answering one set of questions. If we miss this insight, then we just think evangelism is telling a magic formula to everybody, every place. But what she is saying is, God is starting different conversations with people. We catch up on that conversation through this double listening. As we do, we're fully in line with scripture, how God addresses salvation in different patterns. Missiologist Craig Ott then says, well, you can then just begin with a biblical analogy that has the most common ground with the hearer's worldview, experience, and frame of reference. So suppose we engage in a different worldview called the shame-slash-honor world. This is prevalent in the East, but today demographers tell us the majority of the world have this internal, I'm sorry, this external shame. Now, shame is not an internal experience, like guilt and fear are, 
But shame is a collective outward experience. Shame is like a credit card you can add to it or subtract to it. Those who are in shame, they're not looking for power or for justice, but they're looking for their honor to be restored. And it turns out, this actually came into the human world at the very beginning as well. Remember Genesis 2. It says that Adam and Eve were naked and had no shame. After the fall in Genesis 3, after they hide, they take these leaves to cover their nakedness. Therefore, shame enters the human experience at the very beginning, and it's one of the results of sin, and whole cultures have been shaped around that. Um, Those in the shame-honor world, they are looking for a story like the prodigal son. You remember the story of the prodigal son where the son takes the wealth of his inheritance from his dad, uh, blows it all, brings great shame upon himself, but even more important, upon his family, finally comes back, And what does the father do? He gives him the ring and the robe. That is all about restoring honor. He has now been restored. His honor is restored as a member of the family again. And that is the image that connects with those in the shame slash honor world. It turns out shame is actually rising in the US as well. Because shame needs an audience. Social media provides a large audience. And therefore, shaming starts to come through the social media, so it's not unlikely that you will find someone who's in this shame experience. They don't want to hear about guilt or fear, right? They want you to understand their shame in order to hear how Christ can restore their power. So, I'm sorry, their honor. So in a sense, we could say, here's a short summary, that these three different worldviews, the result of sin is different in each one of those, Uh, God's conversation has started differently, and the image that is vivid in each of these worldviews are different. In the guilt-slash-justice world, it's like the judge in the courtroom. Shame-honor, it's more about a relationship, a cleansing, a restoration. In the fear-power, it's more about freedom or be given power. Missiologists have known these three worldviews for many years, but one that is increasingly rising and is emerging that our research for the last seven years is uncovering as well is indifferent gal. So here she is. She doesn't feel guilt. She doesn't feel fear. She doesn't experience shame. How do you address this gal? Now, we don't see this in the garden, right, with Adam and Eve, but we do see it with their children, particularly Cain, who was indifferent to God's warnings. But what uh, Howard Netlin, a professor, has said, the end point of secularization is not atheism, but religious indifference. Okay, so think of that. As the ideology of secularism creeps into our society, it doesn't lead to more atheists as they thought before. It actually leads to people being religiously indifferent. So a study was done a few years ago, uh, the National Study of American 20-somethings. That's actually a term in the dictionary now, 20-somethings. That may describe you, I don't know. Or may describe what you want to be, I don't know. Uh, But they surveyed almost 2,000 young adults, interviewed 200 uh, and then actually interviewed 49 that were in that category of being religiously unaffiliated and several congregations. Here's what they found, how they grouped themselves. So these 20-somethings, 30% are evangelical Protestants, hallelujah. 29%, the second largest category, are unaffiliated or the nuns. This is a bit concerning because this category keeps growing and it's growing rather rapidly. So this is actually kind of the bullseye for church planting. Because if we don't find ways to understand this worldview and engage it, the new church that comes in town is like the new shiny toy where people from other churches attend, 
And you never really increase the Christian population, you just kind of reshuffle the deck. Right? So what if we understand this demographic well in order to engage them, and if we take that sector and, and explore that further and drill down into it, here's what we find. 17% of them call, call themselves unaffiliated believers. They say, well, I'm still a Christian, I just don't see the need to affiliate and go to a church. 17% are spiritual eclectics. These are people who borrow, say, some from Christianity, maybe from uh, folk religion, Asian religion, missiologists call the syncretists, where they just combine different things. 12%, which is actually a rather small category. These are people that have convinced themselves philosophically that secularism is the most logical conclusion. By the way, this sector is not growing rather rapidly. Tim Keller says there's actually a crisis of secularism. Because when you follow the logical conclusions of secularism, it has so many holes that logically thinking people realize it's not helpful. It doesn't validate. It doesn't go as far when you start pushing it. But the largest category by far is 54% are indifferent seculars. Now, God is still having a conversation, even though this category is growing. We're assured that God is having a conversation. Where is God starting that conversation? John Stott said, the postmoderns are often yearning for three things. Community, a sense that in a fragmenting world and society, they belong to a family. So think of belonging. Uh, secondly, significance, or a sense that they are meaningful, that they have purpose and make a difference, a highlighted purpose. And third, transcendence, a sense or a connection with what is beyond the immediate and material things and beings. More recently, in the last few years, Beth Severinsen did another study of emerging adults ages 18 to 35. And she found that God is starting a conversation in one of these three areas. This is how oftentimes people come to faith. For one, experiencing compelling community. That should look familiar. Secondly, making a difference through service or leadership. That purpose area should sound familiar. And third, receiving mentoring or leadership development. So how do we respond to the indifferent crowd? What if God is starting a conversation already with people who are longing for belonging and for purpose? Leonard Sweet has said, one of the, the paradoxes of millennials, they value privacy so much that they are now hungering for community because they're lacking it, because there's a, a loneliness and anxiety, right? So if God is starting the conversation with belonging and with purpose, perhaps that's a better starting point for indifference gal than starting with guilt, fear, or shame. Now we see, and this brings us to our story of Zacchaeus. Now you remember the story of Zac, uh, this wee little guy, you know, in this sycamore tree, and, and I like sycamore trees, they're good to build things in. Um, but here he is, Zacchaeus is described as a chief tax collector, and that's the only time in the New Testament that term is used. So what we know about tax collectors, very despised, rejected, not even allowed in most synagogues. They wouldn't even be allowed to come in. And he wasn't even really trusted by the Romans as well. So you could say that Zach is very indifferent to Judaism, very indifferent to the religious system of his day. He wasn't even allowed to step foot. The synagogue wasn't a religious guy at all. When Jesus comes to him, okay, and then he goes to visit his house, Jesus doesn't start the discussion about fear, about shame, about guilt. Instead, he brings the disciples with him so that Zacchaeus feels like he belongs in this community. He's come home. And as he belongs in this community, he then realizes he has a new purpose for his life. And you remember, he stands up. 
and he says that those I've defrauded, I will repay back. So all of a sudden, Jesus starts the conversation with him, belonging and purpose, and then Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. And Jesus concludes that passage by saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. In other words, the Son of Man is having a conversation with Zacchaeus, even though he may not admit it. So we could uh, flesh out our table here a little bit, and on the far right, put that column of indifference, and just say that the image of salvation in this category is not the judge, and is not the, the cleansing, and is not the power, but it's the image of coming home. It may be coming home to a, a home they once had and lost, or it may be coming home to a home they never had, but always longed for. And that is more likely the place that God is starting a conversation with the indifferent crowd than speaking about power, honor, or justice. Now, this may seem a little bit complex. It's not. We, uh, in partnership with Asbury Seminary, Knox Fellowship, we developed a face-sharing card game. In, in a matter of time, you're able to recognize these different patterns, these worldview patterns, and then also recognize how to present faith in those patterns. And once you practice that, in like a safe space in class, then you're able, much more prepared, to be able to handle the tattoo guy or the indifference gal. What's this look like in real life? Well, it turns out uh, we did a study at American University in Washington, D.C. I don't know if anybody's been here to American U. Anybody like visited or visited D.C.? Okay, been to American. So American U is not, we'll say, a hotbed of religious conservatism. I know this because my daughter went to school there. And she said, actually, this strengthened her faith because every day she's engaging people who are indifferent. And she had to articulate and respond in ways that made sense to them. She said that uh, the biggest outreach they have is Welcome Week on the secular campus where they train people in hospitality. And they train each other. If somebody meets seven people in our group, they start to feel like they belong. So if you meet somebody, one of the first things you do, introduce them to six other people so that they feel like they belong, they're connected. They've hosted racial reconciliation meetings on campus as a sign of their purpose for being there. Their evangelism is in small groups in order to help people belong so that they believe. And here are some of the comments they said. Authenticity is so important. Christianity is not a to-do list or four steps. Actually, the four spiritual laws, they said, is inauthentic. It feels like a fortune cookie and they're moving away from that, they say genuine relationship with others and with God is most important, and this takes time. Particularly for the indifferent crowd, expect it to take more time. Some of the work we've done with crew, with the indifferent crowd, has told us you can't just simply present the gospel. There's probably many previous steps that need to be engaged. And again, uh, former evangelist professor George Hunter said that oftentimes it takes 30 contacts for someone to make a faith decision, and you don't know if you're number one or number 30. Here's their website, and they intuitively leaned into this. If you're engaging people who are indifferent, on the website, look how they're presenting what Jesus offers. Purpose, community, right? So they didn't even hear this, this message here, but they're leaning into the fact that belonging with purpose is the conversation that God has already started with those who are indifferent. Here's a not yet believer on that campus in an interview said this. When I think about people who are more religious than I am, or if I were to have a reason to start going to church, it would be to have that sense of community. It's one of my favorite things about the church. Hello. God is already speaking to him about the need for belonging. 
why not start there, where God is already conversing, and lead that conversation to Christ, as opposed to talk about guilt, or fear, or shame? What about a church plant? So I teach a class on urban church planting. We get to go to cities around the world, uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, and this is London, England. And we met with a church planter, Paul, who said that 20,000 people go past this street every Sunday and there's no Christian witness at all. In that section of London, about 2 to 3% attend church in a month. Just for comparison's sake, it's about 50% or so in the U.S. overall. So what he decided was to make this coffee shop that has desserts, I mean, what could go wrong? You have coffee and something sweet to eat. And um, here's what Paul said. I've had more spiritual conversations with people in a week than I had in working in a church for a whole year. And what Paul articulates is this. We need to find out how to form community. This is why we chose a coffee shop. It's a third space where people share life. We aim to build community in the cafe. He's starting with the belonging aspect where God is already conversing with them. Secondly, they train and employ vulnerable women. They set up a safe home for women coming off the street. And they also have a prison visitation where they visit the women's prison. They're demonstrating their purpose. And people there are connecting because that's where God has already started that conversation. So for those who are indifferent, my suggestions, listen well. Do the double listening. Listen to the Holy Spirit as you're in conversation, whether it's in a tattoo barbershop or it's an indifferent gal. And listen to the Holy Spirit and listen to that person in the cultural context. What has God put in your hands, your experiences, your life story, in order to share with them, to draw them into God's story? And the question to ask is, what is their next step? And I hate to say this, but oftentimes their next step is not to invite them to church. I wish it weren't so. Now, a millennial explained it to me this way. He said, well, if there's an imam that invited you to his mosque, is there anything he could do to, to invite you that you'd come? And I said, well, no. He said, well, that's how a lot of millennials feel about the church, for various reasons. But the next step is most likely asking questions like this. What can I invite them into to belong into a Christian community? How can I invite them to be a part of a community that has a better story than the one they're living now? Or can I invite them into some activity that gives them purpose that's bigger than just themselves? What can I invite them into? And then along the way, You'll, you'll listen to their story, share your story in order to connect them to God's story. So in conclusion, I have two quick stories here. This is about an uh, evangelist, Sundu Singh, in uh, India. He said that uh, there was a, a man on the tr railway platform, very, very hot that day, so much so that he was overcome by heat exhaustion and collapsed on the trail, the platform. Somebody ran over with a cup they had, filled it with water and offered it to him. He rejected it. He obviously needed water, but he rejected it. After a while, they noticed there was a cup of his own that he brought with him. So they took that cup and filled it up, offered it to him, and he drank it right away and was refreshed. And that's when the Indian evangelist said this. The problem with foreigners is that you bring the gospel in a foreign cup. Bring it to us in our cup. And if you do, we'll be refreshed. We'll receive what God has to offer us. In our terms today, listen well enough to see where God's conversation is to know which cup God has already offered them and connect with that. The, the last short story here is from um, the late Fred Craddock, famous storyteller, preacher in the South. He tells a story about a lady who stormed into his office one day and said, hey, I've had enough. I'm, I'm quitting this thing called church. You know, like, 
well, what do you mean? Well, you know, I go to this church, and every week, people sit at the same spot. All they do is soak it in. They're kind of like getting all the blessings from God. He's the way maker, the, you know, the light in the darkness. And they think that they're the cul-de-sac. All the blessings come to them. They don't realize it's supposed to be a conduit to take this out to other places. They're just soaking it in. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, I know of people that are going to seminaries, some of the best seminaries, and I know he was thinking of Asbury. He didn't say this, but he was thinking of Asbury Seminary. People are leaving their jobs and their homes and coming to a seminary to learn how to engage people outside the church. They're listening to them well, they're connecting with them well, and they are actually living lives. Instead of just soaking in the blessings of God, they're living up to the fact that they are a conduit to bless others. The lady says, I don't believe you. Oh, really? Yeah, I want names. I want you to write down some names right here. And he concludes and says, can I give them your name? Can I give them your name? Can I give them your name? Lord, we come to you as people that are weak vessels, that have our own fears, our own failures. Give us the ears to be double listeners, to listen to your spirit as you speak, to also engage the people deeply that we listen to, to have this deep learning and listening so that we offer love and express our empathy to them. We thank you that you are sharing a conversation with everybody we meet. Help us to catch up with that and draw them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.